welcome to episode 20 of the Poldark Podcast. We are a podcast dedicated to the discussion and analysis of the series Poldark, both the TV adaptation and the novels by Winston Graham. In this week's episode, we are concluding our Series 1 rewatch with a discussion of episode 108. Uh, we are also continuing our book club, and we are currently reading The Four Swans. My name is Rita. I live in England. I tumble at Princess of Poldark and tweet at Rita Bite. And I am Michelle. I live in the States. I tumbler at Poldark Muses. That's Poldark M-M-M-U-S-E-S. And I tweet at Musings, M-M-M-U-S-I-N-G-S. Our friend Delanda is not able to join us today. She just became an auntie. Yay! <laughs> She's very, very excited and, and, and clearly over the moon about it. Uh, congratulations, our friend, and uh, we'll miss you and be happy to have you back with us uh, the next time we record. Yeah, let's begin. Episode <laughs> 8, start our final episode of Series 1 with Demelza singing the song, Oh, How Do I Pronounce? Is it metal, metal and Gwyn? Yeah. Is that it? I think it's okay. metal. Metal and Gwyn's. Yeah. Close enough, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Which is translated from the Welsh, soft is the wind. She's kneading dough for scones, which we then see her carry in a basket along the windswept cliffs towards Will Leisure. This is taking place approximately six months after the reveal of the Carnmore shareholders' names. As she approaches, we see Ross standing amongst the miners near the engine house. He is unsmiling, despite the gentle smile offered to him. There's a tension between them that's noticeable. Ross hands out scones to some of the bedraggled children nearby as she watches. Demelza then makes her way down to the cottages at Mellon where Judd and Prudy are squatting in one of Ross's abandoned barns. Judd, per usual, uh, slings insults Demelza's way, which Prudy promptly shuts down in a thrice. Demelza confirms that Ross knows they are staying in the structure but turns a blind eye to it. You know, I don't think Beattie pulls her punches, do you? <laughs> that looked <laughs> like it hurt. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, at the Red Lion, the Warleggins continue to plot and scheme over the smelting works that were built to support Carnmore. They're talking loud enough for John Trevonance upon whose land the smelting work sits. They're saying, if Carnmore fails to get more copper, it will be unfortunate to have that site and money invested in a company no longer capable of producing. Assholes. Cut to Numpara, where Demelza and Ginny are making more scones. <laughs> uh, Ross comes in, dark, unsmiling, and brooding as usual. Demelza says Ginny she should go home to her daughter, Kate. Um, doesn't she only have a son with Jim before he goes off to prison? Oh, so, God. <laughs> I know, right? So this could create some challenges later down the storyline. But anyway, uh, we learned that the little girl has been sick, but thankfully, it's not the putrid throat. That's a mercy. Tis, sir. Only this week there's three dead of it in Seoul. Here, take these for you and Jim's mother. I'm that glad to serve you again, ma'am. I know you can scarce afford me. Ginny, if we did what we could afford, you wouldn't get out of bed. Another tidbit of information the Poldarks had been forced to let Ginny go earlier in the year. Because of Carnmore, perhaps? Ross looks over at their daughter, Julia, as she sits near the fire playing with a seashell. 
She has a new tooth coming. Soon she'll be able to bite like Garrick. <laughs> it's a moment of softness before Ross notices a letter on the table. It's from Verity. Ross raises troubled, glowering eyes to meet Demelza's. We head to Trenwith, where the cinematographers have shifted the palette to a colder, greyer tone, befitting the moods of the residents, especially since Verity's departure and the rift between the Poldark cousins. Aunt Agatha asks when Verity will be home. This is not Verity's home. Damn, dude. Well, Elizabeth looks pale and is wrapped in a shawl with a flushed Geoffrey Charles on her lap. Francis complains of a sore throat and asks for one of the servants to get him a posset. According to Wiki, a posset is a British hot drink of milk curdled with wine and ale, often spiced, which was popular from the medieval times to the 19th century. Personally, that sounds completely and thoroughly disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, the word is mainly used nowadays for a related dessert similar to a syllabub. In the Middle Ages, it was used as a cold and flu remedy and was more of a drink than a boost. Someone call Ruth Teague because apparently <laughs> her syllabubs are fabulous. Unfortunately, all of the servants in the house are ill. The only person in the house that appears not to be ill is Aunt Agatha. She states that if Verity were there, she'd prescribe honey and licorice. Dr. Choke prescribes leeches. I have no faith in Dr. Choke. Oh, nor I. And even less in Verity. Yeah, we get it, Francis. <laughs> Blame all this shit on your sister. You had absolutely nothing to do with it. Nope. Uh, back at Nampara, <laughs> Ross has read Verity's letter and declares Demelza's experiment a success, with enough sarcasm dripping off of his voice to gag a maggot. <laughs> Demelza, like a supplicant, asks if Ross's experiment has gone well, too. Uh, Carmore is what she refers to, and he informs her their hopes are pinned to the next auction. If they get sufficient copper, they will survive. Demelza asks to help, clearly still upset that her involvement in Verity and Blamey's marriage helped to put the company in such dire straits. I wish to help. Let me help. We could raise a mortgage on Lampara. Already raised. You could sell my brooch, my best frock. By no means. I'm not yet so desperate that I must steal the gown off your back. But I would feel better if I could somehow make amends. Consider this a great big flashing light of foreshadowing here, kids. The next morning, Ross is saddling Dorothy up for a trip into town. Demelza tells him he'll win his bids, get the copper he needs. He mounts the horse without kissing either his wife or child goodbye, or giving them a backward glance. Uh, you might want to rethink that, dude! As he rides, he runs into Dwight, who is supposedly wasting away. He looks exactly the same. <laughs> his eyes look a little uh, murky, but other than that, he looks just the same. Still handsome. His self-inflicted punishment after Karen's death and Mark's exile. He's determined to care for those who were left behind. Mark is, indeed, safely away, living in France with no plans to return. So Ross encourages Dwight to stop flogging himself. The latest epidemic has brought the doctor plenty of work to stay busy. The putrid sore throat, morbus strangulosa, lat I can't do Latin, apparently. 
Morbus strangulatorious. That sounds fake. Is this real? I don't. I. I. I tried. Did, to, did you make this up? That no. Like that fun. was exactly what was in the closed captioning on the show. Literally. Yeah, but it sounds like some Harry Potter shit. <laughs> you know. It was also known as putrid fever and was an acute, gangrious inflammation of the. F- Why did you give me this? <laughs> <laughs> the medical words. What forces? Forces and, and pharynx uh, that attack the tonsils and then caused sloughing near the pharynx. It's highly what contagious. Is, what's a pharynx? I have no idea. I'm guessing throat things. Yes, you know, because it's putrid sore throat. In short, ew. <laughs> um, I think it was uh, compared to diphtheria, diphtheria. in modern I can say diphtheria, uh, medical terminology. I can pronounce diphtheria and nothing else. This is... <laughs> Basically, in short, this was nothing to F around with. Dwight's having difficulty containing it. Ross believes the poor are more susceptible to it. However, the doctor disabuses him of this assumption. Choke, appropriate name, is on his way to Trenwith. Ross looks distressed and asks who is afflicted. All of them, dude. Ross would prefer Dwight attend to them, but he doesn't want to poach on Choke's patients. Besides, I lay no claim to a cure. Sometimes the weak survive and the stronger wonder. No magic bullet here. Ross rides over to Trenwith, arriving just as Choke is leaving. The doctor denies the problem with the putrid throat. Remedies have been applied. All are on the mend and will be up and about in no time. Ross hesitates at the gate before turning to head on his way to town. Meanwhile, Elizabeth watches Ross ride off from, you guessed it, the window. (laughs) window I'm adding a little trademark next to that because, you know, it's the window. Cue slow motion walk through town where Ross meets up with his boys, uh, Henshaw and Tonkin, uh, for the auction. Uh, We cut between the auction and Nampara, where the news at both is not good. All of the ore is sold to South Wales Smelting, which is a Whirligan-owned company. Jord side-eyes Ross's hangdog misery gleefully. Well, maybe not gleefully, but if he had a mustache, he'd be twirling the end of it. Hell, (laughs) even Wheel Leisure's ore goes to South Wales Smelting. Back at Nampara, Ginny arrives with news from Trenwith. Everyone's sick, even the servants, and Choke is gone until the morning. Demelza ponders for a moment before asking Ginny to watch Julia and putting her to bed if she's not back by nightfall. Back at the Red Lion, Ross, Tonkin, and Trevonance are the only three members of Carnmore left in the room. The meeting, such as it is, is called to order. No copper means no business. With a moment of parliamentarian formality, the Carnmore Copper Company is dissolved. Not a good day. Ross leaves the inn, and who should jump out to kick a man when he's down? George, of course. Ross, you're becoming a hermit. Margaret was only saying how much she's missed you at our little gaming parties. Ross walks on, attempting not to be goaded into a confrontation. George practically chases Ross down the street, seemingly intent on rubbing Ross's nose into his past association with Margaret saying that she'd once had a fancy to marry Ross. Not you. Oh, my sights are set somewhat higher. Failing to get a rise out of Ross that way, 
George continues asking about Ross's wife, how she was remarked upon at the last ball, which Ross says they've no time for socialising. George pounces upon this opportunity. The smelting company must be keeping him busy. Ross still avoids taking the bait, claiming it's leisure that keeps him busy. George surmises some shares should be coming into the market shortly, and it's at that moment that Ross finally turns and faces his nemesis. And whose are they? Oh, I, I understood them to be yours. But perhaps I was misinformed. You were. Ross stalks off. Meanwhile, Demelza has arrived at Trenworth's front doors, knocking for a moment before discovering it to be unlatched. Great security. She enters the quiet house where dust cakes the dining table. She sees a portrait of Elizabeth on the wall. Suddenly, Aunt Agatha appears like a creepy witch on the landing, thinking it's Verity. She no business to go. Her duty's here. Twas a selfish, cruel thing she did to leave us like that. Uh, thanks for pounding the nail of guilt a bit further into the wood, Aunt A. Demelza hears a cough and heads up the stairs. Back in town, George is still following Ross down the road. It's not the road. They've, they've wandered off into like a completely different part of town. Pecking away at what little wealth and dignity the latter may still have, finally we come to the crux of the argument, the thing that sits between these two men. What is it that offends you, Ross? That we Wolleggans have dared to drag ourselves out of poverty and aspire to gentility? Poverty doesn't offend me, nor does aspiration, but you are mistaken if you think greed and exploitation are the marks of a gentleman. You know, one of these days you'll find yourself without means, without colleagues, without friends, and with no one to blame but yourself. Ross wishes George a good day, through clenched teeth. Ross walks onto the pier, giving us one of the most iconic shots we have of Ross Poldark for the series. Mm-hmm. Hashtag, I miss the scar, damn it. <laughs> it's a and yummy, he... yummy image. <laughs> <laughs> and sees a tall, mastered ship. Carrie Willuggan and Matthew Sanson can be seen bragging about the ship with the local soldiers and sailors. Ross turns and walks away. Back at Trenwith, Elizabeth sits next to Geoffrey Charles's crib. The boy cradled in her arms. She looks like death warmed over. She recognises Demelzo, who has come to help. Elizabeth is in despair. Her child has spasms, vomits, and after a moment's relief, it begins again. Demelza promises to stay and look after the entire family. Elizabeth looks thoroughly shocked and sobs with gratitude. Back at Cardew, the war leggings, Matthew Sanson, and Margaret, who is spectacularly dressed up, the girl has definitely moved up in the world. Sit and laugh over Ross's feeble attempts to lift copper prices. George observes he actually did until the Warleggans became wise to the scheme. That was like, it took them maybe about 30 seconds to realize what the scheme was, though. <laughs> so was I know! Good lord. And now? The smelting works stand idle. Price of copper will fall again. We'll be left with enormous debts. And no obvious means to discharge them. Perhaps he will throw himself upon your mercy. He may try. 
Margaret doesn't look happy. Ross is at Pasco's, commiserating with his friend about the pile of debts he has, all that's left of 12 months' work. But Ross is in, ha is in for another jolt of bad news. The smelting work he'd invested in, built on Trevonance's land, has been purchased by Warlegan to cover Trevonance's losses. And all of this is taking place while the rest of the investors go bankrupt. Demelza is working to care for Francis, Elizabeth, and Jeffrey Charles. Francis mumbles that it's good of her to overlook past quarrels to help. Jeepers, that's nice of you. <laughs> Just God. I know. Ross gets the lowdown on his own debts. 900 pounds. More than I said. You think? Pasco reminds Ross that he has assets, i.e. the shares, and was approached by someone who offered to purchase them. Ross tells Pasco it was George's man coming to call. Ross refuses to sell to see Leisure closed to improve George's own interests and asks Pasco to find him a loan, unsecured, which will have a ridiculous interest rate on it. Back at Trenwith, the illness continues and it's clear Demelza will be there all night. Francis asks if his son will die. Demelza says not if she can help it. Later, assuming it's the next day, because who knows, hashtag Poldark time, <laughs> Pasco meets up with Ross to tell him he's found a loan for him. A thousand pounds with an interest of 40% at the end of 12 months. Oh, dude. Rather than selling everything and getting clear of debt, Ross will, of course, take his chances. The odds are against him. And should I doubt it, the sight of Matthew Sanson parading about like a prize cockerel, permitted to trade and socialise as if his integrity were not in tatters. Who's to gainsay him? The war leggings are complete masters of the district. And the ship? The Queen Charlotte, their latest venture. They seem pleased with her. They consider her their flagship enterprise. And themselves unassailable. Back near Nampara, Demelza walks along the cliffs. A horse approaches, and it's Ross. He cautions her about walking alone at dusk. Mm. Sad that that's even true now. And scoots back in the saddle to ride home with her. I love it when they ride together. Uh, over supper, Ross warns Demelza of sickness at Trenwith. She reports the baby had it worse, but the crisis has passed. Ross is glad to hear it, saying he that even though he hasn't forgiven Francis, he wouldn't wish that illness on his worst enemy. But Demelza has something to confess. I swore I would never keep secrets from you again. And so? I went to Trenwith. But they turned you away. No. I stayed all last night. <sighs> He's horrified, of course, and while she continues to share how dire the situation has been, he looks positively thunderous. She compares what she has done to what he'd done for Jim Carter. <laughs> Got you there, pal. Uh, he acknowledges she was right and that it was a kind and generous act. Perhaps in a fortnight I'd be in a mood to appreciate it. A storm comes up and we hear a baby crying. It's Julia, and she's woken Ross, who finds himself alone in bed. Demelza, who's pale and has circles under her eyes, is up holding the baby. She is hot, while Julia is cold. Ross tells Demelza to bring the child to bed. Once done, Demelza 
gets some water to drink and winces. Ross crosses the room to see Demelza in the light of a single candle. Her throat is swollen and she has a rash on her neck. This is not a good sign. Ross pounds on Dwight's door with tears in his eyes. Dwight comes to Nampara where we find a pale, damp Demelza lying in bed. The diagnosis is made, putrid throat for both of them. How bad will it be if they get through the night? Dear God, surely there's no reliable treatment. What can I do? Pray. It is the start of a terrible night for the family. As Russ stays with Demelza and Dwight with Julia, Demelza rests fitfully and begins to hallucinate as her fever worsens. She sees Ross with Elizabeth, images of her father asking if she's saved. Interwoven with this are scenes from what's happening in the room. Elizabeth implores her to let go, that Ross would rather be with Elizabeth, and then Dwight enters the room with horrible news. Julia is dying. Forgive me, I cannot save her. I will stay with her. I would not have her be afraid. Fling all of the awards at Aidan Turner's face. Ross walks back into their bedroom, the keepsake Demelza sewed for their daughter dangling from his fingers. He looks shell-shocked, eyes bruised from his tears. Demelza is calling for their child. How will he ever be able to tell her? One of the most beautiful pieces of music from the series plays throughout the scene and leads us to the moment where Ross walks along the cliffs as a violin, which Anne Dudley has said represents Ross, plays the longest walk. He is dressed in black, the tails of his coat blowing in the wind as he carries an impossibly small coffin on his shoulder. Dwight follows behind them as they head to the church. Once they arrive, Ross is shocked to see everyone there waiting for them. His fellow investors, his banker, his friends, the painters, even including Francis. Smashed cut to Cardew, where George and Carrie are chowing down on their very fancy breakfast. Old art. Will not be bothering us for a while. Because? You'll be otherwise engaged. <clears throat> With what? His daughter's burial. George has the good grace to look shocked and saddened. But Carrie? Not so much. Because Carrie is a massive douche. Back at Nampara, Ross is by DeMille's side. He is still dressed in his funeral clothes. Dwight implores Ross to rest, but Ross is more concerned about his failure to provide refreshment for all the mourners from the funeral. The winter's been savage. The least I could have done was fed and watered. I would expect it. They know if Demelza's on this. Everything I touch is cursed. Dwight checks on Demelza. There's no change, either for better or worse, so he tells Ross to go get some air and then try to sleep. While Ross is outside, the sea surges and the storm continues. He notices a ship careening towards the rocks near Hendrona Beach. Shipwreck. Carrie brings a glass of port to his nephew to propose a toast. 
The Maiden Voyage of the Queen Charlotte. The Demise of Conmore and its Chief Architect. Kerry Drinks. George Does Not. Dwight goes out into the yard to find Ross saddling Darkie. When he asks what's happening... Today, I omitted to provide for the mourners. Now there will be remedy. He charges off to Melon to spread the word. Shipwreck on Hadrona. There will be pickings for all. He tells Judd to spread news to Saul and... Marazon Vos. I, I love the name of that town. Marazon Vos. What is she? Brigands heat. Grain aboard, pilchards. Enough to fill your bellies for a month. How do you know? I know who owns her. Ross and the villagers head to the beach. He looks like a man possessed. Meanwhile, users reached Kaju. They realise where the ship has crashed. Hello, Luggins. The karma train is here. Room for three. Oh, wait, only two. <laughs> Back at the beach, the barrels and boxes from the shipwreck are washing up onto the shore. Folks are scrabbling about and grabbing everything they can, including Ross, who snatches a barrel away from someone and proceeds to beat the thing open, revealing salted, salted pilchards ready for the eating. He orders them to feed the children first, promising plenty for all. More news comes to the Warleggans from Hendrona. Carrie is not a happy boy. These people should hang. Goodness! Cranky, cranky. Carrie wants the captain of the ship to testify about the lawlessness, then decides Matthew's testimony against Poldark would be better. George is actually attempting to sound reasonable. You know, should Matthew witness anything... Did you all know he was on the ship? Because I sure as hell didn't. Uh, this could be important. Uh, Carrie looks positively deranged, even proposing they fabricate evidence in order to see Poldark and these people swing. Finally, he vows to turn the debacle into an advantage for the Warleggans, because that's what they always seem to manage to do. But he doesn't go out to do anything about it. Far be it from here to leave the cosy comforts of the pink room of doom to actually lift a finger. Back on the beach, a pig has washed up out of the surf. So bizarre. This would be considered a major haul for any of the families down on the beach participating in the shipwreck. Ross is bringing some merch up into shore. In a great series of slow motion shots, we see Ross surveying the beach a totally evil pleasure curling up the corner of his, corners of his mouth. He looks like the devil. <laughs> what a revenge to have upon the Wooluggins. Back at Cardew, they wonder if the reports are true that Ross is on the beach despite his daughter's passing. Question what his mood will be coming up. Kerry seemed delighted at the prospect that Ross will be caught in the act of breaking the law. Back at the beach, Judd warns Ross that miners from Elugan are coming to the beach having seen the boat up from the cliffs and followed it around the coast. Concerns that they will want a piece of the pickings are raised, that they'll seek it through violence starts to spread. Judd sprouts off more tidents than you can shake a stick at, and Ross orders them to clear as much of the cargo from the beach as possible before they arrive. After that, no one will be able to control things. Judd and Prudy spat over a figurehead from the ship, Judd toppling over the statue onto the beach. That's one of my favorite scenes. Me so too. Funny. And it looked it looked like it hurt. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> he went down hard. <laughs> I love that scene so much. 
uh, well, back at Cardew, the Warleggins have brought in a Redcoat and implore him to go to the site to protect the passengers and crew. About time they thought about them uh, from the rabble on the beach. Oh, and then the cargo. It is generally accepted that what's washed ashore is property of the finder. It is the property of the Warleggans, and anyone plundering will be guilty of theft and committing a capital offense. An understanding is met, sealed with an ample bag of coins. Back at Nampara, Dwight and Ginny sit by Demelza's bedside. She doesn't look like she's stirred since Ross left. Dwight had hoped that she would come around by this point. He tells Ginny to go and help her family down at the beach. But just then, a knock rings out on the door. It's someone to look after the mistress. Night is falling and the waves are crashing. Ross's rabble are trying to gather everything from the shore as the Alugan miners begin to arrive. He tells people to go home and make the women and children safe. Judd is being a serious pill. <laughs> uh, Ross tells Prudy to take him home before he gets his big mouth into trouble. Suddenly, word of survivors from the wreck comes in, and they are arriving right in the path of the beastly Illugan miners. Ross goes in to try and save the survivors. Chaos, shouting and fighting is underway. Ross almost looks like he's going on a stroll for Pete's sake. Yes, dude, you started this craziness, but it's getting way out of control. Finally, he hears a call for help and sees two Luggan miners punching a survivor. He rescues him. Once safe, he notices the body of another on the beach. It's Samson, dead, having drowned. Ross closes his eyes and begins to make his way home. At Nampara, a woman, out of focus, is dabbling... A wet cloth across Demelza's face. Who could it be? As Ross heads up the hill, he runs into the captain and crew from the ship. He offers them shelter. The captain is appalled over the mayhem he's witnessed, asking Ross if he has any control over them. <laughs> As if. When Ross heads up the hill, the crew, passengers and captain follow after him. As they approach Nampara, Ross and the survivors run into the redcoats heading down to bring order to the right. The captain insists the soldiers go down to protect the cargo from the rabble. Ross recommends they wait until daybreak. These people are fighting drunk and quarrelling among themselves. Interfere and they'll turn on you. But if we fired into them, not half of you will come out alive. Do they listen? Of course not. As Ross leads the men into the parlour, he asks them for quiet as his wife is gravely ill. Dwight wakes up from the most uncomfortable looking bed. Seriously, you're six feet tall, man. Are you going to bed down on a four-foot-long wooden settle? Hey, wait a minute. If you're asleep down here, Dwight, who's up with Demelza? Ross walks into the bedchamber to find Elizabeth sitting by Demelza's side. She says she was too weak to attend the funeral, but came here to help when she heard Demelza might still be in danger. Ross looks at her with tears in his eyes. She saved my child. And lost yours in return. Oh, Ross, if I could do anything that you would make. Can. If you can pray to God, I do not lose the love of my life. Elizabeth gets up to leave. Ross kneels next to the bed and begs Demelza to come back to him. Elizabeth turns to see Demelza stir and open her eyes at Ross's touch. Has she come to take you? No. No, my love, she will never take me. 
Clearly shaken to the core by this declaration, Elizabeth leaves the couple alone. Bye, Felicia! Bye. Bye Bye-bye! The next morning, Hendrona Beach looks like, well, a wreck. Ross approaches as Matthew Sampson's body is taken off the beach. George is there, watching as well. I was sorry to hear of your loss. The world is a darker place without her. And a brighter one without him. Ross, that was a total dick move. Once again, George tells Ross they have more in common than he thinks, and could be allies. Ross sprouts some more idiotic comments his way, and stalks off the beach. George, on the other hand, appears to have made his mind up about something. Back at Nampara, Demelza is awake and asks for Julia. Ross shushes her and tells her about the shipwreck in an effort to distract her, but she wants Julia. The time's come to tell her. You see, the moment when realisation begins to cross her mind and when Ross hands her the yellow ribbon, the tears begin. It's a moment of tremendous acting between Aidan and Eleanor. We then cut to Trenrith where we see Francis carrying Geoffrey Charles to where Elizabeth sits by the fire. Their family is restored where the other one has been destroyed. Aunt Agatha announces the arrival of George, who seconds ago was walking swiftly up the drive towards the house, a man on a mission. Francis is not in the mood, and Elizabeth looks as if she can't believe how lily-livered the man is, but goes to make their excuses. Elizabeth has heard of George's cousin's death, and tells him she wishes there was some consolation she could give him, at which point he picks up her hand and kisses it lingeringly, and she appears disturbed by it. Sooner or later, we must all declare for one side or another. For which side do you declare? For no side. At least, for no man. Uh Uh-huh. The man basically said he wants your ass with your own husband and child sitting mere feet away from you. He is no longer going to have his feelings or intentions misunderstood. So the game is on. Mm-hmm. Back at Nampara, Demelza is crying as she sits on Julia's little cot. Ross joins her, looking desolate. Demelza wishes she'd had a chance to say goodbye to their daughter. Ross, looking at her, powerless to do much of anything to comfort her, saddles Darkie and takes Demelza out onto the cliffs, which, when you think about it, might not be the best thing to do with a person who has just recovered from a near-fatal illness and little more than a shawl, but hey, what do I know? Uh, It's one of our favorite scenes of the show, and Seamus the Horse is winning all the acting awards here for his effortless, stately walk with barely a hand on his reins. Such a good horse. The music from Resuragam plays... I will rise again as they stand on the cliffs. Demelza implores Ross to take comfort from the fact that Jeffrey Charles is well and asks him to make up with Francis despite his betrayal. You make me ashamed. Your heart is so generous. You always see the good in things. I will invite him to join me at Wheel Leisure. Together we will try to resurrect the fortunes of the Poldark Mines. 
will that satisfy you? So there is hope. And it will not have been for nothing after all. As the yellow ribbon is taken from her hand by the wind, the red coats approach. Epic Series 1 Romelza Hair Wars commence as the soldier tells Ross he has orders to take him to Choro Jail for wrecking, inciting a riot, and murder. Who accuses me? George. Finally, in glorious slow motion, Ross is gathered up by the soldiers and walked off to jail, leaving a frail and desolate Demelza alone on the cliffs. The end. Bump up a literal cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> Literally cannot end the show anywhere but a cliff. Exactly. Oh favorite and least favorite scenes? Um, least favorite because like all of the ones that I like were really freaking depressing. Um, I thought the Demelza singing scenes are always really amazing. Elena has a really beautiful voice, but I just love the whole montage was just beautifully shot and um her waking up and asking where julia is yeah oh it kills me it's so emotional and Mm -hmm. i really wanted to fast forward during my rewatch because it always makes me cry it's just gutting yeah and it's it's mostly played out without dialogue which is just purely hinges on eleanor's performance really as Mm -hmm. you see it's sinking mm-hmm. in and it's just gutting. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Delanda asked us to mention her favourite scene and that was um the scene of Ross burying Julia. That's her favourite. Not only in regards to the emotional package that Aiden brought, but also the music, the mm-hmm. longest walk. Yeah. And the director uh Will McGregor did such a tremendous job with the five episodes he was given to direct. And the symbolism when Ross, being the only person able to gather people from the, the, all those different social statuses together, like, yeah, such a sad event. And she said previously, previously that the scene where Ross um doesn't speak are her favourites, like when Julia was born and he held her hand while the sun was setting, and Julia's funeral for that reason is her favourite. Mm. Yeah, I I completely agree with Delanda. Um, the you think about it, and you know Ross was the first to show her the cliffs that he loved so much, and was the last to hold her and carry her along them. It's just it, this the whole that whole section is just almost too much for me to bear. Um, Julia, why did you have to die? I know, I know. It's it's awful. It's just awful. Blah. Um, I will also say, um, I think one of the, the, the best scenes that I noticed um, during this rewatch um, was the scene where Ross and George are having that continuing confrontation uh, as, you know, it's following the auction. And, you know, George is basically chasing him down the street, taunting him. I thought that was an extraordinary bit of acting by both um, uh, Aiden and Jack. 
you know, in, in showing just why their relationship is so contentious. It, it shows this, this buildup of, of anger that is living within Ross that I think is something that's carried forward into season two, you know, when the, 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 the trial happens, you know, all of the, the crap that is taking place that is making, uh, George seem to be coming more and more on top and Ross being kind of crushed below. And then they finally have that fight. You know, it's almost like the fight really started in this episode where George is just like goading the bear, baiting this bear. Um, it, it, it just really struck me for some reason. Um, you know, it could be because I was watching it over and over and over again while I was doing the, the episode summary, but I just, I just found it to be really, um, really intriguing and kind of the, the, the spark that lights this long fuse that finally blows up in season two. Um, how did you feel about Demelza's going to help at Trenwith in light of the consequences? Well, one of the things about Demelza's decision making, you know, and even the idiotic decisions that she makes, uh, they're always centered around good intentions. Uh, you know, even Ross admits that what she did was the right kind thing to do. You know, it was also true in last week's episode uh, where she helped Verity and Blamey. He, he said, you know, if two people love each other, why shouldn't they be together? Um, you know, it just absolutely breaks my heart. She wound up losing her child as part of the bargain. I always feel really muddled about this because I gave Ross a bit of a hard time about going to the jail to save Jim. But it, to my mind, this is slightly more justifiable because they're family and there's three of them. And it was a way of mending a rift in their relationship. Um, she obviously ends up actually saving them. So it ends up seeming like a worthy act in my mind a little bit more. Um, I do kind of wish Jamelza had implemented better caution about approaching her own family afterwards. But that would necessitate an understanding of how a virus works. That would probably be impossible for the time. But I'm kind of like, if only you had just been like, Ginny, take my child for the night. You know, it would have saved everybody. Yeah. You know, unless she happened to be Claire Beecham <laughs> from Outlander, <laughs> who has medical experience and, you know, is time traveling back and forth. Uh, yeah, un unfortunately... Uh, there really wasn't an awareness of, of how illness spread. Um, and so it's it's really unfortunate that it wound up taking Julia. And it it is still something that continues to bother me, especially as, you know, events from series two unfold and we see, you know, Elizabeth's um, you know, out and out pursual of, uh, of Ross, um, you know, despite the fact that he is married to the woman who saved her life, saved the life of her child and wound up losing her own in, instead. Uh, it's something that she really doesn't care about. It was, it was one of the things that, that really struck me about 
um, uh, he does uh, interview with Masterpiece. You know, I still can't get that podcast out of my head when she is asked a question. You know, did she feel any guilt about, you know, doing what what she did in series two when. Yeah. And she said no. And, you know, I was just like, oh, just stab me in the chest. Uh, but, you know, at least, you know, that's the honest answer. Elizabeth wouldn't have cared about it. And it just, it just, it's, it's awful. It is brutal. It's brutal. So, and um, One of the things that I find really confusing is Russ starting a riot while his wife lay in his sickbed, possibly dying. Like, it's, like, I do understand that shock and grief affect people, but this was just odd to me. Like, if Demelza had died and he had not been by her side, Ross would have been, like, horrified with himself, and he would oh, yeah. never have forgiven himself. Yeah. Because, like, yeah. that's the way Ross works. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he still started that riot. And yeah. Such, you know, a, I think... such an odd thing to do. Like, I'm just like, you're very weird. Yeah, but, I, you know, I honestly, I don't think it was his intention to start a riot. Um, I think, you know, he was, you know, and, and, you know, you mentioned that, that people do very strange things in the initial throes of grief. Um, and it's one of those things that really annoys me about some of the crime shows that I watch when the police say the, the next of kin, uh, didn't respond the way they thought they should have responded upon hearing the news of a loved one's death, because, you you can't rely on everybody having the exact same response uh, at that time. You know, um, I think given the way his brain was working and he says this over the course of the episode uh, and particularly the scene where he is saying over and over again, I, I should have provided, I should have provided, you know, the winter was savage the people have been starving. There's massive resentment over the warlike and riches. Um, you know, Sanson, who cheats at cards, sitting atop a pile of, of grain while the poor starve. He was unable to provide refreshment. And here is this ship that he saw loaded with, you know, food to feed all of these folks that had come to, you know, pay their respects. You know, I, I think that he, he didn't think about what the consequences were going to be, uh, when he went and charged around telling people that the, that there was a shipwreck. Um, and I don't, I, you know, I don't think that he had any intention to, to see it turn into the, the melee that it wound up doing. It's all those Lug and Miner's fault. But you know, the weird thing is that he sort of enjoyed it. That's what's unsettling about it. It's like he's in so much pain and anger, and he's seeing like the destruction of innocent people are getting attacked just because they survived on the shore. And he's like, sort of like, okay. Oh, you mean fun. are you are you talking about that slow pan scene of the the shots of him with the, the yeah? He's smiley, like, evil this thing. is anarchy, and I'm enjoying it. <laughs> I don't think that the the Alugan miners had arrived at that point. I think I think it, he was thinking more along the lines of, you know, this was 
Thea Luggins' flagship uh, investment, the Queen Charlotte, and it has gone down. And he's reveling in the the War Leggins failure in that moment. I I don't think that the 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 survivors etc. were being attacked at that point. I'll have to I'll have to go back and and look at that. But yeah, I I don't think that he was he was smiling and grinning over the the attack on the the crew and the survivors from the the I wreck. I think it was just a like a slightly sick twisted part of him that enjoys yeah. the anarchy. Yeah, it could be. Well, that's that's kind of one of the things about Ross. He's always been a rebel. Yeah. You know, and, and, and so it's, it's what draws him into wars and mm-hmm. the struggles that he has yep. later on. He's like he's he's reckless. He's a, he likes the danger. He lives on yes, the edge. Yes, he does. <laughs> the danger and the adventure. Um. So, moving on, what was the performance of the episode? <laughs> For me personally, it's got to always be Eleanor, and this week was just. Honestly, I think this episode was her best performance both seasons. Um, her reaction to waking up without Julia was truly chilling and just raw and raw and honest. And I was really miffed she didn't get nominated for a BAFTA. Like, who do I call to complain about that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I think they both deserve massive number of awards for this uh, episode. And I, uh, Eleanor, of course, you know, she was, what, 23? When she shot this, um, it, <laughs> I think about it, how unaccomplished her... my life is compared to. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, I continue to be floored by uh, the the depth of her performance uh, for an actress uh, of such a young age, you know, and and not just here, uh, but in uh, the White Queen. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to see it, she was just fantastic in that. Um, and I think she was the yeah I think she was the best thing in uh, Death Comes to Pemberley to be quite frank, um, <clears throat> but uh, uh, I think that that Aiden's performance following Julia's death you know simply broke my heart you know when he's holding her and he's got you know what looked like buckets of tears just trembling on the edge of his uh, eyelids, um, you know and then when Demelza wakes and he declares that Elizabeth won't take him. Um, when she realizes that they've lost Julia, you know, I, I, I had a similar experience when I learned about my mother's sudden death 19 years ago, and there still remains this like vivid scar that excises through my life path. At that moment, I was fundamentally changed. You know, I, I remember what my life was like before that moment. And I remember what it was like after that moment. And it was completely different. Um, you know, I don't remember seeing color for, uh, days after, uh, after that, uh, it was, it was truly horrible. Um, and even with that experience, I can't even begin to comprehend what it would be like to lose a child. And when I watch that scene and I think about uh, my own personal experiences with with grief and loss, uh, I, I multiply it a thousand times, and you know that's that's what I see conveyed uh, in the performances of of both uh, Eleanor and Aiden uh, in this episode. 
now that we finished season one rewatch, um, you know, let's talk about the, the season in, in a broadened sense. Um, what storylines have been improved or worsened in light of season two? So on rewatch, I think Francis's arc improved exponentially for me. I always enjoyed the character and that particular arc. And Carl's performance is always amazing. But something about seeing how the arc ended managed to enhance the beginning, sort of, and highlight the nuances of the performance. I think it just added an intensity to it. And I thought Elizabeth came across a little less sympathetic in hindsight. In season one, I feared they were whitewashing a lot of her actions. Um, but I don't think that's fair in retrospect. After season two, though, what rewatching it made me see there was more ambiguity about her intentions. Like, that subsequently, after seeing season two, that shed a light on her season one performance for me. I think the whole, I still find the Karen Daniel death <laughs> just gross. It was even worse watching it the second time. And as a final thought, I think I would have wished there were more episodes because as tightly scripted as these episodes were, they were really brilliantly written and they packed a lot in. It just never felt like there was enough time to breathe and let some of the moments sink in. This show could easily benefit from a US 22 episode season. <laughs> but I guess that's just wishful dreaming. Yeah, yeah. you imagine? I mean... Uh, I, I really wish that each one of these series had had uh, 10 shows um, instead of they're trying to do all of that within eight uh, for series one. I agree with you that it, you, you and as we've gone through these episode uh, summaries, it is astonishing how much they packed in to eight episodes uh, for this show. You know, in doing the episode summary, you know, writing it up and, and realizing that, you know, you're only a quarter of the way through the show, but it feels <laughs> like you've been writing forever. Depressing. It's been almost you know? 10 minutes. <laughs> I know, I know. But uh, it, it, it really is a tribute to uh, how brilliant Debbie managed uh, to adapt this story and make it breathe as she did so um anyhow um as far as elizabeth was concerned i you know i had never read the books when i first watched the show and i never bought into the whole elizabeth bff thing with demelza from jump street uh, i do think that it was more subtle than the original scripts portray in some scenes. And it wasn't helped in that the direction of several scenes didn't manage to convey the tension that was supposed to exist. And there were several where Ross was still meant to be waffling around about his affections between the two women. You know, even the, the Christmas dinner at Trenwith, you know, the, the, the christening scene was a, a much clearer um, delineation of, of of him uh, waffling, you know, when Verity says, perhaps you'd like both. And he says, yeah, probably, um, you know, that, that, bleh, um, you know, that was, that was much clearer. But, um, you know, when um, 
I first watched the Christmas at dinner scene and Elizabeth greets Demelza, to me, Ross merely, uh, you know, just looked merely pleased as if to say, you know, see Demelza, I told you she was kind. Uh, but the script, however, it reads differently. And this is taken from the, the complete scripts. These were the ones that were submitted, uh, not the ones that were shot. So uh, there is a distinction there. Completely disarmed by the warmth of Elizabeth's welcome, Demelza allows her to be led into the Oak Room. Ross, who had expected some coolness towards Demelza, is profoundly impressed by Elizabeth's behavior. It stirs in him feelings he'd hoped were dead. Verity recognizes this and glances sideways at Ross as they go into the Oak Room. So you hear that, and then you watch that scene, and it's not what I saw. You know, it was, you know, just what I saw was, you know, see Demelza, I told you that she was kind. You know, that kind of thing. You know, hearkening back to his uh, comment about, you know, know, by thinking that Elizabeth is, is mean, you're doing both of us a disservice. So... It, it's it's kind of like that. That changes the entire intent of the scene with Francis as well, because when he says that she he knows that Elizabeth's playing a game to try and win Ross's affections, like he comes across as paranoid and crazy now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So so yeah, it's just it it it's it's just kind of crazy making. <laughs> the further and further you dive into this. Oh, Lord. oh, the okay. subtleties of Poldock. <laughs> I know. Uh, what was the highlight of season one for you? I think it will always be the coming of age of Demelza for me. Like, the journey she goes on can only be described as epic. Like, you can almost forget that she was a street urchin living in rags, starving. Like, when you see her enter ballrooms with such confidence in season two, and... It was really fantastic rewatching it, I think, because in my mind it helped me reimmerse in her, like, in her origin story, because I think that's very important to understanding the psychology of some of Demelza's actions in season three. So you've got to keep those, her origin in mind, because it, so much plot happens, it kind of gets forgotten. No, I agree with you. I agree with you. Um, I loved that. I think the highlight for me was the growth and development of Ross and Demelza's relationship, particularly in episodes three to five. Ah, the golden, golden. The gold, yeah, the yeah. It's like <laughs> if I need to go to a happy place, that's where I go. <laughs> I just like episode four. Oh yeah, episode four. <laughs> I'm almost afraid to look at my iTunes to see how often what they the view count is. On that particular episode, because <laughs> I think it's probably huge. It's probably huge. So, so which season do you prefer, season one or season two? Uh, you know, I think series two has a lot of meat on the bone uh, when it comes to epic storytelling and uh, the emotional complexities of of human relationships. You know, the honeymoon is clearly over uh, with Ross and Demelza, and they face all kinds of challenges to their marriage, including, you know, challenges that almost destroy it. Um, and in many ways, when they face those challenges, they fail. Um, I think 
it's what happens when they rise above the hurt that adds to the patina of their relationship. You know, we talk a lot about copper within the context of the show, but I know that I find copper more beautiful when it's had a chance to age and develop that beautiful, like blue green patina. Uh, and, you know, as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, you know, that is a color that keeps coming up within this series um, around Ross and Demelza, you know, the, the color of her, of the, the dress when they first make love, um, the, the color that is shining in through the, the door at Nampara when she is packing her things and threatening to leave, that color is back again. Um, you know, that patina only happens through time and exposure to the elements. And I, you know, I think I've been hesitant to do a rewatch of the entire second series. And I mean the entire second series. I've watched bits and pieces of it, but I have not watched episode eight since the first time I saw it. Um, and I'm now, I now think I can watch season two and be content in the, the storytelling within the, uh, across the two series. I really, you know, random point but i really want to try watching it like a like i binge watch tv shows like episode after episode after episode and i see if if that would change how i view it in a way because i think waiting between each episode and analyzing them to death as we do on this podcast sort of changes your perspective on things and the 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 story might flow a little bit better if i'm not like cutting it to pieces and before this, re- before this rewatch, I think I would have said I preferred season one, hands down, because it was a much lighter and brighter season, and it was a much more joyful message about love, and I think if I'm going to have to be reasonable, I have to say I prefer season two now, because even though I felt that there were a few minor slips in the form of the adaptation like the final episode in particular, the rest of the season was impeccable and much more grand in scale. The cinematography and the music and just the huge number of cast members and the wonderful performances around. Uh, I also really, really much prefer the supporting cast to season two, not as a diss to the season one cast, but they introduced some like wonderful new characters. You've got Caroline. I really like Rosina for some reason. And her little Hoblin. I obviously love Onwin. Uh, even Ted. Like, like the ever-expanding nature of the saga is really appealing to me. Even when Ross is being annoying. I can just be like, I like Rosina. <laughs> <laughs> In her yeah. polka dot skirt. She's always yeah. a fun time. Yeah, it, it's I I agree with you. I'm I'm looking forward to just sitting down and and surrounding myself with all of my favorite TV watching foods and uh, just going to town on season two. I think it'll be fun. It will be. Um. So now it's time for messages. We got a message from Anonymous this week that said, "Just a comment about season one. I really liked what they did with Julia." She was frequently seen with Demelza, and even Ross held her a couple of times. Even Ross! And asked about her often. They did a nice job of showing that Julia really was at the centre of Ross and Demelza's world. I thought they did this so the audience would feel her loss very deeply, as Ross and Demelza both did. 
and it worked really well. Thanks so much for going back to review all of season one. <sighs> I I like this too. I thought it was very cleverly done because some you'll notice when you listen to our podcast how much I freak out every time they show Jeremy. I'm like, Jeremy's there! <laughs> Aiden helped Jeremy for like three seconds. Um, I just feel kind of it's important for the story that there is a difference and a disparity between these two children. But it's so depressing when you think, like, they have this child and he's grown and been a part of their lives for a lot longer than Julia was. But he's still kind of like this background. <laughs> it's like they have a cat or something, yeah. not like a child. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, but it's important to the story. It is important to the story. For what you'll see later, people. Let's see. Alrighty. Well, we are about to shift gears and go into book club. So for those of you that don't want to know what's going to happen in series three, uh, this is the time where you jump off of the podcast. I want to thank you for joining us and look forward to seeing you next time. Bye. So, mm. book club. Yes. Book club! We should really have a jingle. Just... <laughs> it's book club time! Okay, we're covering book one, chapters 7 through 12 of the Four Swans this week. There were a lot of things that took place in these six chapters, and we're very excited to discuss them. So our questions this week, uh, who or what has struck you the most in these six chapters? This could be a specific person action and or situation all roads lead to the kitchen said in one word ozzy <laughs> he is such a disgusting pig i feel like this is going to be hard to watch if they bring his true character to screen i'm so miserable for moena i just want to castrate that creeper yes <laughs> absolutely addicted poldarki said demelza and you armitage his continuing pursuit of her Bpack sixty seven said, "What an absolute hideous sleaze Ozzy Whitworth is." <laughs> Word. Yes, and Amanda Poldark says, "I'm finding Hugh Armitage interesting to follow." More on that with question number three. And the second question was, "What is the storyline that has grabbed your attention, and why?" All roads lead to the kitchen. Said, even though I dread seeing it come to life. The Aussie and Morwenna and Rowella storyline. To see sweet Morwenna so miserable and abused is really hard, and I'm hoping that one day Aussie will get what he deserves. Though I'm not counting on it. I'm scared about the Hugh Armitage situation too, for Demelza's sake. And every time I read a scene where a man is falling over Demelza in Ross's presence, I can't help but wonder why he doesn't puff up his chest a little and try to scare them off. I'm sure it's because he trusts her, but we've seen what so many men in the Poldark world are capable of. It seems like machoism in these situations might be warranted. Mm. Absolutely addicted Poldark, he says, Ozzy Whitworth and the relationship with his young sister-in-law, Rowella. I suppose I am drawn by in by the sheer horror of it. He's such a disturbing and disgusting character. And her behavior as well. Yikes. Poor Morwenna, my heart breaks for her. BPAC67 says the Hugh, Demelza, and Ross storyline 
Demelza struggling with her feelings towards Hugh and how she openly discusses this with Ross. I also think there are parallels in the way Ross puts Demelza on a pedestal as Ross did with Elizabeth. Good point. Amanda Poldark said, I keep coming back to Morwenna's sad story and hoping that Wentworth dies suddenly. Painfully. <laughs> yes. I think all of us kind of hope that something evil happens to this man. Um, let's see. So, what are your thoughts around the following? Demelza has received a couple of visits relating to Hugh Armitage. The first, a visit by the man himself, bearing what, bearing to be what turns out to be a magnolia plant. Alright, leads to the kitchen, says, I don't think this was strange at all. Plants are nice, cordial offering. So, yeah, I don't really see the problem with Hugh visiting because Demelza has received lots of calls from admiring men, as Ross mentions, and they're usually by themselves in the past. And some of them are platonic from Dwight, or not so platonic from like Sahu or even McNeil. Like, she has shown herself to be capable of handling men if she so chooses to. Hmm. I'm going to come back to that last little sentence that you said there. See Um, how I had to flip that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely addicted Poldarkey says, maybe I'm reading too much of this, but it felt calculated, a way into her heart. She loves plants, gardening, what better way to hand deliver uh, an exotic plant? which I seriously doubt was his uncle's idea. I must say I did enjoy Ross's comment that it looked like a laurel. BPAC67 said, Hugh is in love with Demelza. Ross is aware that Hugh has feelings for her. All three of them are aware that Hugh did not come to see Ross, but Demelza, and the flowers were not for the wife of the man who saved his life, but for the woman he is in love with. I love that observation because that is precisely what they all know it. What what this this scene is, and it was one of the reasons why I picked this specific question about it was because this is a very clear overture uh, of Hugh of his intentions towards Demelza. Um, you know, it, and it is it, it and he references the whole you know the wife of the man who saved my life thing. But, you know, it, it, to me, it, that's just all a cover story. It's all a cover story for his, his behavior. Um, not a convincing cover story. No, not anybody. at all. Not at all. Um, BPAC goes on to say, I love how Hugh and Demel, or how Ross and Demelza, oh God, there was a Freudian slip. How Ross and Demelza openly discuss how Demelza has some feelings for Hugh. And this is a quote from the book. As they went into the parlor, Ross said, does he touch you, my love? She half glanced at him with a glint of embarrassment. Yes. Deeply? A little. His eyes are so dark and sad. They light up when they look at you. I know. So long as your eyes don't light up when you look at him. She said, Who were those people he mentioned? Eloise, was it? Isolde? Legendary lovers. Tristan and Isolde, I know. I can't remember who loved Eloise. Was it Abelard? He lives in dreams, Demelza said, yet he isn't a dream. He's very real. I rely on your wonderful common sense to always remember that. Well, yes, what I try to remember is that he is so young. What? Three or four years younger than you? What at most? I wouldn't look upon it as an unbridgeable gap. I wish twere more. You'd like to be old? What an ambition. 
He put his arm around her shoulders, and she quickly leaned against him. I see, he commented, a tree in need of support. Uh, just a small matter shaken, she said. I really love that. <laughs> I, I love the conversations that these two have with one another. And I think it's one of the things that just breaks my heart about this book. And I, I know I posted something on my blog the other day where I, I basically said I effing hate this book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's true. This book, this book probably of all 12 of the series is the Bella? one that, that, <laughs> that just completely guts me anytime I read it. Um, and it's, it's this, it's this realization that there is this train coming straight for them and what they each do in addressing it. It, it, it just, it, all three it, of them are sort of complicit in this complete car crash. That is well, absolutely. Happen. Absolutely. But you know, I, I mean, I see Hugh is the, Hugh is the train. Hugh has nothing to do with, with how, uh, they wind up responding to it. And it's, it's this, this slowly approaching, um, it's like an asteroid headed for you. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you see it coming and it's like, holy shit, will you just do something? Do something. And, you know, one of the, one of the commenters, um, it was, oh, where was it? Oh, all roads lead to the kitchen, you know, is asking why, why Ross isn't puffing his chest up to try and scare them off. And that was one of my first reactions when I read this was, you know, why didn't Ross just take this little shit out behind the, mm, the, I never the, had that reaction. the greenhouse and like shake the crap out of him and say, I think it's a quite obvious off, man. It would be hugely hypocritical. I think. Yeah, exactly. One of the realizations Ross comes to is that he can't say anything. Exactly. Exactly. He has no leg to stand on. And he's just kind of hoping and praying that, that she's going to be able to deal with this thing that's coming. So it's in, in a way it's like we said earlier that the repercussions of Ross's betrayal last for years and years, and this is one of those instances where it's like if he hadn't been with Elizabeth before, then maybe he could have said something stood up to Hugh and said like it's a, you're being inappropriate like don't come around here anymore like I don't think he needs to go all macho but he can like have a word with him but he just can't now he has to just hope and pray that Demelza will handle it uh, the last quote we have was from Amanda Poldock who said I've had this theory ever since I first read the fourth one that Hugh Armitage was interpreting Demelza's kindness as an open door and due to later events in this novel, the door swings open even more. Now, I'm not so sure that this theory holds up, especially when you take the Magnolia into account. Showing up unannounced to Nampara with no other pretense seems a bit beyond banter at a party. I don't think he's up to no I don't think he's up to no good, but I also believe he's developing deep feelings for someone who can't easily return the favour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, our next question was, 
the second an invitation from his uncle Francis Gower for she for she and her husband to join them for dinner, supper, a night over at Tregothnan, if I remember the Tregothnan. Or at least the kitchen said there was this was a bit forward, especially since there was a poem specifically written for Demelza. Maybe I should find him creepy, but I don't yet. This can be blamed on the fact that I've seen the innocent-looking face of the guy who's going to be playing this character, and all I see is this face when I'm reading. It is really strange watching it, knowing, rereading it now, knowing what Josh looks like, and like I've seen him act before, and I'm just like, he's just so squishy. <laughs> <laughs> he's not capable of this. Like, um, this is my opinion. As much as this plot like may annoy people i'm quite intrigued by the opportunity this connection presents the poldark family and just as an opportunity for the novels as a whole because it means we're getting a broader look at the 18th century cornwall aspect beyond the landed gentry that we're familiar with in the poldark saga so far like there are several tiers of peers and royalty just a whole nother level of fuckery going up there. Yeah. Um, and they come with their own like peculi- peculiarities and resentments and all these different dynamics. And I can't wait for Winston to put some teeth into them because uh, he always has like an interesting perspective on all these casts. Yes. Yes, very much so. I agree. I think that, and, and I think during doing this reread, I'm enjoying the the additional the additional uh, bits of history and um society and all that kind of stuff uh much more You're than i did the like first taught. time <laughs> yeah it, i mean it, it's it's really fascinating really fascinating uh let's see i absolutely addicted poldarky said is it just me this guy doesn't give up i was relieved when they went with butler or when they went with uh caroline and dwight they could provide support and be a buffer pop possibly. And Ross, he sees this happening, and I do enjoy their open, honest conversations about it. But the fact that she's hiding his written poetry isn't good. And that was the thing that just kind of made me go, Demelza, what are you doing? She has a history of hiding secret correspondence. That's true. She really, really does. And, uh, you know, the, the fact that, you know, when Ross came in and and you know, saw that she like, was hey Ross, somebody wrote yeah. me a poem. <laughs> yeah, but when Ross came in and he saw her, that she seemed to be like particularly flushed and and you know that type of thing. Um, you know, little did he know that the reason why was because she had this poem written by Poetry Boy. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, BPAC sixty seven says there is a slight change in Demelza and Ross's reactions from Hugh's Magnolia visit. I think Demelza was is a bit more defensive and sensitive about it, and I agree, I agree with that. Uh, Ross is becoming a bit more concerned, even though he doesn't believe anything will happen. I don't know if he doesn't believe anything will happen. I uh, do you moment, think that? I mean, do at you the think moment, that, I think he's he feels pretty secure that Demelza won't act on it. Yeah, that's just how I interpret their relationship from the beginning. Uh-huh. I think he's always been more secure in her feelings towards him than she has about his feelings towards her. That's true. That's true. She, she had this unwavering 
loyalty. That's and true. And then I think it's like at the beginning of the Black Moon, the beginning of Black Moon, I think there is a monologue in he says that there is a slight change in their relationship. She doesn't look at him with the unwavering loyalty that she used to have. Like, there's a different look about her now. Um, and I think that slight shift in their relationship, he's noticed it, but he doesn't realise the repercussions of it. Yeah. And I think yeah. this is... like He's not as aware about the vulnerabilities in their relationship as he should be, I think. Yes. Uh, okay, I agree. yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. So, after that long speech, Amanda Poduck said, The second occasion is more in line with an accidental meeting. I believe Francis Gower was genuine in his invitation to thank Ross and Demelza for saving you. Most of his conversations with Ross was about politics and gratefulness. I also think Hugh was glad he got to see Demelza again so he could then express his feelings for her. So far in the series, we rarely see a man who is interested in Demelza who doesn't bring up her past or seems way too lecherous. The poems and romance is a different type of affection and she isn't quite sure how to deal with it. It will be interesting to see if she can dissuade him. Yeah, this is, and that's a really good point. Hugh really is the first man that does not, he doesn't really know about her past. Um, and he doesn't really bring it up, which uh, is a very interesting observation. So thank you for that. I think he might know, but doesn't bring it up. Because I feel like everybody... It's possible. Like, I mean, it's knows. possible. I mean, one of the things I thought was interesting was, that was mentioned by Amanda, was the fact that his approach to romancing her is distinctly different from anything Demelza would have encountered as like a miner's daughter mm-hmm. she's not going to be sent flowers and poetry you know yeah. and be wooed that way it's yes yeah. it's like a like how she imagines genteel people caught mm-hmm. and that i think that's the appeal for her in her mind she feels very flattered because she, this is even ross didn't treat her that nicely <laughs> like when oh, no. he just slept with her and then married her um, <laughs> and she's getting a real courtship and that's yeah. what she is getting out of this just completely dysfunctional dynamic yeah yeah okay here we go meeting in the graveyard yeah <laughs> discuss <laughs> <laughs> all roads lead to the kitchen said what's the actual fuck <laughs> ross just told elizabeth that she was the love of his life um, Ross, did you not tell Elizabeth Demelza was the love of your life when you thought she was going to die? Question, was there a difference in the book than the show? Because I haven't read the earlier books yet. This just pisses me off, and don't even get me started on this. Quietly he put her, this is a quote, quietly he pulled her towards him and covered her face with kisses. <laughs> uh, like, after reading that, I was just like, I hate Ross so much right now. I'm like throwing <laughs> Demelza at you. Just do oh, it. God, just don't do, do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. No, don't do that. Um, and to answer your question, All Roads, uh, yes, it's completely different in the book because, wait for it, Elizabeth never goes to Nampara to nurse Demelza. That was something that was completely made up and added to the television adaptation. 
Uh, the moment where Ross tells Elizabeth that Demelza is the love of his life never happens in the book. It's one of the things um, that uh, I rarely hear anybody complain about, but it was added, in my opinion, to create the impetus for Elizabeth's actions in season two, the, the Harvest Festival and the dinner party conversation. Uh, so it's it's one of those it's it's one of those things that I think is going to throw anybody who has not read the books uh, to hear that phrase come out of Ross's mouth in this uh, graveyard scene. Yeah, my I, my guess is that he probably won't say it in the TV version. Um, I I I would hope that that Debbie would have the sense not to use it because it is something that is such a memorable moment from series one um, and something that is kind of searing into your brains and, and really causing Elizabeth to, to do what she does uh, in series two. Uh, um, meanwhile, I'm totally on board with what BPAC 67 has to say. Uh, the, the grave, the graveyard scene gave Ross the opportunity to have things out with Elizabeth uh, things that should have occurred three years ago, uh, post the May night uh, at Trenwith. Elizabeth, despite not wanting Ross to walk with her, was able to express her anger at Ross at his actions on that night and its consequences. Ross did finally recognize and acknowledge that his behavior on that night and subsequently in not coming to see her was indefensible. Also, Elizabeth, who has no one she can confide in, and is clearly worried and frustrated about the predicament that she and her son Valentine are in, told Ross about George's suspicions that Valentine was not his son. This is a final goodbye to someone who at one point was the love of his life. And he does use the term were when we have that scene take place in the book. Um, well, and... There is a scene that that happens in the last book, um, and I, I don't know if I want to go into it, but it is uh, uh, something that Ross says to Demelza, where you know he says, you know, in his life he has loved two women. I think it's completely possible to to have a, a deep, loving relationship and feeling for more than one person in one's life. I mean, I, I would I, agree, know, except for the nature of his relationship with Elizabeth was incredibly shallow and fleeting. But, you know, that's the thing. You know, you think about, you know, the the loves that, that you have when you are younger, um, you know, and I think back on, on you know, the, the I know the one that, that I had uh, when I was younger. And, you know, yeah, there were there were some elements of kind of shallow activity going on with that, but it still doesn't mean that when I think back upon that person, what I felt for him was love. There's no other word for it. There's no other feeling for it. Um, you know, the, there could be differences in the intensity, but, you know, I think that it's completely possible for Ross to have loved two women in his entire life. Um, God, I but, wish it was somebody other than Elizabeth. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, you and me both. You and me both. Um, but uh, you know when you know he, and then her final statement is, 
the guilt, concern, and sympathy for the situation Elizabeth was in with George. Um, I, t- you know, I totally agree with with what BPAC had to say. You know, this was this was the conversation that really probably should have happened after the night in May, but they neither of them were in the space to have it. I don't think. I don't think that they would have had this kind of, of conversation and closure um, that they do in what happens at the graveyard. The closure is good. The suggestions Ross makes towards the end of the conversation make me uncomfortable, but whatever. Well, I know, I know we'll, I know we'll get into that, but I, I, I think that I'm going to maybe keep that for the angry tide. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We'll save, we'll save that one for the angry tide. Okay. Amanda Poldark said, Ross is emotionally constipated again. Word. In his attempt to gain some sort of closure with Elizabeth, he manages to open the wound even wider. I think because Elizabeth wasn't explained expecting him to be there she actually had her guard down i think the insinuation that valentine is probably ross's child is going to be something that's going to continue to cause drama either show version it seems like elizabeth really can't tell and ross's suggestion to lie about the date of the second pregnancy also sounds like a recipe for disaster you and me both sister it's just (laughs) such terrible advice do not go to ross it didn't have to be it didn't have to be, and we'll get into that when we get into uh, Angry Tide. I think everybody assumes that it's like this recipe for disaster, and it's like, well, it, it's like he's, he's suggesting somebody is dishonest to their husband as a, m- a method of remedying their this problem in their marriage, and it's just like you wouldn't do that to Nemelza, so don't suggest some Elizabeth do it to. Like, <laughs> Just use some common sense here. Anyway, we have a question that came into the arse box from this scene that we've squirreled away until now. Anonymous said, in the book, The Force Ones, I can't believe Ross told Elizabeth that he didn't regret sleeping with her until he found out she might be carrying his child and and it was causing problems with her marriage to George. In the TV show, didn't he tell Demelza that he wished that there had been a different way for him to come to the conclusion that he loved Demelza, his, quote, real love? Hmm. Yeah, you have to remember to keep the original text and the screenplay separate. Um, and, and it's one of the biggest challenges I have with this show. Uh, I haven't had this problem before, but this show, uh, it's, it's very like difficult. Like flaming t- book, Ross of the TV, Ross's actions. And it's yeah. Like, yeah. Um, you know, that said, I, you know, I think that, uh, you've hit on what might have been going on in his head when he told, uh, Demelza that, um, he wished there'd been a different way for him to come to the conclusion. Um, you know, cause when I read this scene, I think Ross is speaking directly to that point. He wished that there was another way for him to con- reach the conclusion that Demelza was, um, that that it was Demelza he truly loved uh, deeply, um, rather than the ideal of Elizabeth, um, and as such, he was glad to have had the experience so that he would know that uh, down to his very bones. Uh, the fact that there is now this question about Valentine's parentage is a reason to regret what happened, not only for the chaos that it created in Elizabeth's marriage, 
but all the repercussions this doubt will have upon a child who is the innocent party in all of this. So, you know, I, I think that, that, that that's kind of what was going on in his head about wishing there had been a different way for him to come to this conclusion. I mean, it should have just, it should have just, you know, made sense because, you know, common, you know, people have common sense and they can come up with these kinds of things. But clearly that was beyond his capability. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and think that when he's saying like, I don't regret it, it's because he's managed to <laughs> mend his relationship with his wife. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I yeah, I don't think that when he says that he doesn't regret it, it is an act that he looks back on with great. He's like, that was a good move. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't see him looking back on it, going, "Yeah, that was a great night." Ew, no, I, that's not. I don't see him doing that. Thank God, because then he would yes. just be redeemed. He'd be an ass. <laughs> Chapter okay. 12. Yes. Uh, Ross demonstrates some insight into his relationship with both Elizabeth and Demelza in this chapter. What were your thoughts about it? So another question from the Ask Box. Anonymous said, on page 213 of The Four Swans, when Ross is talking about explaining his feelings for, Eliz- yeah. <laughs> for Elizabeth to Demelza, he says, somehow in the telling of the confidence would have got himself twisted up and turned inside out and become an attempt to reassure his wife of something he didn't believe himself. I don't understand what Ross means. What is the something he didn't believe? I think the... Yeah, I mean, I think that the something that he doesn't believe is that, you know, he doesn't believe that he he still has feelings for Elizabeth. I think... I think that when push comes to shove, and when the time comes to have a serious conversation with Demelza, that he becomes completely tongue-tied and twisted around. Exactly what it says here. That what he knows he wants to say somehow winds up coming out wrong in the delivery. As we have seen previously. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I think that is, that is what he means by that. You know, he could, he could want to tell Demelza that, you know, he ran into Elizabeth in the, the graveyard and, you know, all this kind of stuff and, and, and everything that, that he has come up to, to think in response to that experience, but it would wind up failing in the delivery. And I think that's what this is referring to. Oh, yes. Um, all roads lead to the kitchen, uh, feels fu- pure frustration at, uh, this insight that he has. You know, seriously, I thought he was over Elizabeth, yet he still gets jealous over her. While, as I mentioned earlier, not over Demelza. And I don't think that's true. Um, he pisses me off to no end in that graveyard. I'm not gonna lie, I do not want to see that scene made into season three. Uh, it's gonna be there. Just, just, it has to be there. Um, Oh, and Ross thinking that he couldn't tell Demelza about his meeting with Elizabeth because however carefully explained, she would be liable to misunderstand it. Uh, really? Your wife might misunderstand you kissing Elizabeth lovingly all over the face? What makes you think that, you fucking idiot? And the reasoning inside his head? Arg, it's making me sick right now. 
I mean, what's frustrating for me is, like, I feel like Ross has had this epiphany, like, 16 different times. Like, how many <laughs> times does Ross need to think this shit over? <laughs> I felt like at the end of the fourth novel, novel he should have, by all rights, had, like, enough shit happen. For the most part, he seems over it. Mm-hmm. Um, But then, because he's not around Elizabeth, like, mm-hmm. they have zero interaction between the end of Willow and this. Um, But then Elizabeth comes around... And Mm -hmm. it's just like an opportunity for him to be an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And and I, you know, we we talked about this a a few minutes ago, but, you know, this, as you said, he hasn't had any real contact with her since that night in May. Really? Um, And now he's just told him. gloriously peaceful for me. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, now she's just told him that he might be the father of her child. You know, they never had the chance to to clear the air and to get all the bile out of the way after the incident. Um, you know, honestly, I I could have done without all of the face kissing shit. But um, all in all, I am much more chill about this little encounter than I was the first time I read this. And uh, for reasons that will become clear as we continue the book. BPAC67 said, I think him trying to explain his feelings about Elizabeth Chidamelza is problematic particularly given the events of three years ago. But he should should have told Demelza about the encounter. Yes. Agreed. He bumped into Elizabeth at the cemetery and they talked. Yes. Also, it's interesting how he depends and relies on Demelza. He thinks to himself how he could use her wisdom and advice for the situation Elizabeth was in with George. I think it is natural Ross would not want Elizabeth to hate him and that he would retain a degree of love and fondness for someone who at one point in his life meant a great deal and that Ross is concerned and felt guilty about the predicament Elizabeth was in and wanted to help yeah I agree but then I'm also like dude where were you when when this went down you should have been there yeah exactly Um, Amanda Poldark uh, his self-reflection shows a slightly smarter and self-aware Ross He's reached the conclusion that Demelza is indeed the one for him, but he still can't forget the past, and it shows in the graveyard conversation. He knows that Demelza's main weakness is feeling like second best compared to Elizabeth. I also don't think keeping the meeting from Demelza is going to end well, even if he doesn't want to hurt her. When she finds out, she's going to be even more angry or hurt. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um. Can you pick out a passage that strikes you as particularly profound or interesting? Please share it and why. Always leads to the kitchen. I found Dwight's prescription of Morena interesting. Oh god, I got all this. Six raw <laughs> eggs and two pints of water daily. Not only do eggs contain protein and fat, the vitamin and mineral content decreases when cooked. And the porter was probably used to add calories, iron, and melanin. <laughs> Which are linked to antioxidant, antimicrobial, anti <laughs> It's really not my day. No. I'm just going to say anti-inflammatory, anti-hypertensive, and anti... I have no idea what that one is. To her diet. Um, thank you for the world for giving me all these science names. I stopped doing science for 15. Why? <laughs> I mean, it's really fascinating to see all these gross, like, 18th century uh, prescriptions. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. 
And every time somebody mentions leeches, I nearly cry. Well, yeah. Yeah. No, 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 no. <laughs> like, I don't know if this is particularly profound, but I love the scene between uh, Lord Falmouth, Mayor Hick, and Nicholas Willeggan for many reasons. Yes! But mainly because it was like a personification of the like quote rise of the middle classes that started at the end of the 18th century. I mean, it increased during the Victorian era, but it was definitely starting then because land was no longer the only source of wealth and power. And industrious men like Hick, who has factories for something I can't remember, and obviously Willuggan were beginning to they were a bit too smart about their lack of political influence in the town and like i mentioned earlier i super love winston's mini history lessons i love the politics storyline and i can't wait to see how useless george is as an mp who is here for this <laughs> oh my god you and me both you and me both uh, absolutely poldarky absolutely addicted poldarky said um quote only i have changed Emelza, and it is your fault end quote the thoughts going through Ross's head, I think he feels he had he has had closure with Elizabeth and wishes he could share the encounter with Demelza. Unfortunately, he is fearful of her reaction. The girl likes to tell it at, at, like it is, after all, and so he does not. I just hate what goes unsaid, and I agree with you, uh, absolutely. I was pretty floored by this rare moment of insight Ross demonstrates when it comes to the situation <laughs> he finds himself in. You know, how many of you honestly think if he were to have told Demelza everything that had happened during that meeting, that she would have been able to deal with it. Seriously. It would have think? been just a complete shit show, but I also oh my God. it would have been it, better to deal with the drama straight out than have it festering. Yes, I agree. But I think Demelza is one of those people that if you're honest with her, She'll get angry, but she'll get over it really quickly. She's got one of those tempers. I just like, mm. yeah, 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 I know. It's like uh, a no-win situation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for VPAC 67, it was the Magnolia Passage that was mentioned earlier. Um, Amanda Poldark says she's picking this bit after the graveyard meeting from Chapter 12. I have an uneasy conscience about her for the two misdeeds I committed against her. One. I took her against her will, though in the end I do not believe it was so much against her will. But two, I never went to see her thereafter, and I believe to the first injury added a much greater injury for which it would be far more injurious to apologize. I would like to be friends with her again, so far as is possible considering whom she has married. This quote essentially complicates the implications of that night at Trenworth even further. Here it sounds like Ross is admitting he raped her, and then Elizabeth gave consent. He's still living with the guilt, which is somewhat reassuring, but the quote overall plays into the gray area of the encounter. I agree with you. Uh, I think that, you know, if they wind up, I, I have no idea what they're going to do with uh, Series 3 and how they're going to wind up representing this. Um, I think... It, it it's going to continue to, to raise the ire of folks in the fandom. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, it, it will be another one of those moments where we have a whole bunch of sturm and drong uh, within the fandom as a result. It's an, again, an I would situation. Uh, as always, fill in the blank. 
Dear Debbie, I will be your fan forever if you include blank in season three. All right, Lisa the Kitchen said, A Jeffrey Charles and Drake reunion scene in season three. Absolutely addicted. Poldaki said, Continue to include Caroline and Dwight. I love them. I so enjoy Caroline's frank and friendship relationship they have with Ross and Demelza. I mean, personally, I will be your fan forever, Debbie. She includes Sam going to the Ale House in search of Emma. Nice. Uh, BPAC67 says, a visit, The visit from Hugh and Ross and Demelza's discussion post. The scene in the parlor where Demelza is removing fleas from Garrick and she and Ross discuss the invitation from Francis Aww. Gower. The scene where Ross, Dwight, Demelza, and Caroline are riding to Tregothan and Caroline makes the quip about all the young women adoring Dwight. And Amanda Poldark says, Demelza in up- upgraded costumes for these dinner ball scenes in series three. Preach! Uh, I am ready to see her wardrobe stepped up a few notches. You know, they've got cash now. And buy her a new cloak for Pete's sake, Ross. Right. She can do better than that little shawl. You know, especially since y'all love standing on the windy cliffs all the time. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> she must be freezing Poor her girl. No wonder she got the putrid throat. Exactly. Put on a cloak, girl. And the final thing was questions slash observations of your choice. Absolutely addicted. Poldaki said, one word, anger. Not only for the reader in so many situations, but Elizabeth losing her cool, getting mm-hmm. in touch with her anger. I enjoyed it. It was a relief. Finally, let him have it. He needed to confront what he did. They needed to clear the air, so to speak. But did he have to kiss her? <laughs> <laughs> made me mad. Maybe to him it was a goodbye, but it just made me angry again. It yes. was necessary. Like, come on. No, yeah, the whole kissy face thing, that was, that, no, 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 no. Kiss her hand and be done with it. <laughs> uh, BPAC67 said, uh, Demelza's awareness that she is susceptible and vulnerable to Hugh. He is quite different to any man she has come across. His appreciation of the simple things in life post-imprisonment. A poet, unafraid to express his feelings. They share similar interests. I like her comment from page 85. And some danger existed, not so much in the strength of the attack, as in the sudden weakness of the defense. I think that, yeah, that's a great, great line. Did you have any observations? Because I had one. And it was that I didn't I don't completely know. Hate, hate Elizabeth in this, this particular section. I was like, you're growing on me. Um, I agree with you. You know, this is a, this is where we finally see her um actually doing something you know with george you know even though you know george was being a complete prick uh when he left for london you know we see elizabeth finally getting out and doing something you know going and seeing morwenna and and finding her in the condition that she was in insisting that that dwight come and help to tend to her you know you know it, it and you know, there was a part of me when she said, you know, I would have come sooner, but I've been so busy. And I wanted to say, busy with what? Uh, but um, I think it was nice to see her actually doing something uh, for somebody else. Um, and I agree with uh, absolutely addicted Poldarkey. Having her finally lose that composure. And, I, I, you know, I'm telling you, I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, Hida doing that scene 
and just finally letting Ross have it. I really am. It's going to be so satisfying. It's, I might it turn really into Elizabeth be. Stan. Yeah, it really will be. <laughs> so, you know, kudos for Elizabeth in this in this book. You're going to quote you on that. Um, we've come <laughs> to the end of the podcast. Thank yes. you to everyone who participated <laughs> this week. And just a reminder of how to get in touch. Our ask box is open, so you can message us at podcast.tumblr.com and you can tweet us or DM us at Podcast on Twitter. And if you're a fan, please reblog and retweet and review us on iTunes. We have to take a week off, but we will be back in two weeks with our first of our podcasts on the 70s series. Yes! So excited. And of course, (laughs) we have more of the four swans to cover in our book club. (laughs) So we will see you then. Bye-bye. Bye, guys! But